So I was thinking about Secret Wars and all-new Marvel. As one does. People keep talking about how it's this mashup timeline, but it's really always been one, hasn't it? I mean, Rachel Summers is from Earth 811, Bishop is from Earth 1191. God only knows where their current magic comes from. Exactly. And there are all the refugees from Age of Apocalypse. Dark Beast, X-Man. Sugar Man. Oh, God. I'd forgotten about that guy. Whatever happened to him, anyway? Is he still around? Nah, I think Magneto killed him a few months back. I'm okay with that. Me too. God, he was so creepy. How did he survive Age of Apocalypse, anyway? He was such a weird bit character. Well, in AOA, he'd been running one of the human work camps, the Portland Core. Hey, a hometown villain. I am so uncomfortable with how happy you sound about that. Anyway, Generation Next took down the Core, but Sugar Man survived by shrinking himself way down and stowing away in Colossus's boot. He can do that? He's a versatile villain. Anyway, Sugarman rode Colossus all the way to Apocalypse's Citadel, then hitched a ride on the Emkron Crystal to 20 years in the past of 616, where he secretly engineered the founding of Genosha. Okay. Teamed up occasionally with Dark Beast. Oh, that's not good. And briefly transformed fellow Age of Apocalypse refugee Nate Gray into an interdimensional portal. What?! J. Rachel Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 87 of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. So we are here for the second of our three-part coverage of the Fall of the Mutants, the second big X-Men crossover event. Right, and we are looking, I believe, at the New Mutants this week. Yes, we are. What it's also the second of is our second episode covering Louise Simonson's run of the New Mutants. She took over for Chris Claremont a few issues before what we're covering right now, and Brett Blevins took over as the main artist of the book at around the same time. With a brief segue into June Brigman, and I still resent that Brigman didn't stay the ongoing artist on the series. Somewhere in the multiverse, there is an Earth where June Brigman drew like five more years of New Mutants, and I want to live there. Otherwise, it's just identical to our Earth, or possibly to, you know, Earth on Fire. Yeah, but there's also no letter J. Oh. Oh, that would make your name hard. Um, you know, so anyway, let's talk a little bit about what the New Mutants have been up to before the fall thereof. Well, they've been radically de-aged, not officially, but one of the mandates of Louise Simonson's run was that she was supposed to make the New Mutants seem younger. So there's that. Narratively, well, let's see, they went to a party with Lila Cheney and learned valuable lessons about not doing drugs. Mm-hmm. And then in the process of learning said valuable lessons, they managed to free a human-bird hybrid who had been captured in the Arctic. Right. Now, this is Bird Boy, also known as Bird Brain, and he's kind of an honorary member of the New Mutants right now, despite the fact that his mind is maybe more bird-like than it is human-like. They gave him pants. They gave him a New Mutants uniform, specifically. So this is a controversial story, and I think part of that is because the character's personalities have shifted pretty drastically with the change in writership and with a new editorial mandate to make the characters seem younger. Right. One of the things that we noticed when we last talked about this, when we talked about you know the first few issues of Simonson's run, is that there's a period where she just doesn't quite have the characters' voices down. Now, one of the interesting things about that, and one of the interesting things about the Bird Boy saga in general, because the Bird Boy saga starts a few issues before and then carries over through Fall of the Mutants, is watching her really click like as the writer of this team, because the characters stay younger. But there's a point, especially I think in around late issue 59, early issue 60, where suddenly the characters really start sounding like themselves again. Yeah, or at least younger versions of the selves that they had previously been. But, you know, but still the same characters and a lot of the same dynamics and, you know, recognizable and the things that we loved about New Mutants and didn't find in, you know, 57, 58. Yeah. 
And I think this is important to recognize, and it's something I really want to get across in these episodes about these early Simonson issues, is that while it does totally start out rough, I will absolutely acknowledge that, it gets pretty good. Now, it's a different book than it ever was under Claremont. The characters do sound different, but there's a lot of good stuff to be found here if you can get past just how drastically different Simonson's writing style is and how drastically different Brett Blevins art style is. Speaking of Blevins, how are you feeling about him? Because I am taking so much longer to warm up to him than I am to Simonson. You know, I'm kind of the same way. I mean, he has an exaggerated style, and I think that's going to be a love or hate thing for a lot of people. I don't hate his work exactly. I mean, I don't hate his work at all, really. But it is a strange fit for the book, and it definitely accentuates how much younger the characters often sound in this era. Yeah, it's, you know, we talked about how they feel sort of slapstick Saturday morning cartoony early on in with Blevins and Simonson. And a huge, huge part of that is Blevins' art. And there are some points where it's really profoundly discordant with the story, especially in the Fall of the Mutants stuff. You know, you can use that. You can use more sort of cheerful cartoonish art to really underline the horror of a story. But here it just feels strange, and it especially feels strange because there are elements of it that Blevins does draw in a more traditional horror story. We'll get to that when we come to them. But yeah, it's sitting oddly with me still. That's entirely fair. And I think that's a pretty common experience with this era. So, okay, let's talk a little bit about uh, who the New Mutants are at this point, because for a long time, we had the same nine characters compose the team, and it's not all of them anymore. Okay, so we've just lost Magma, and there are two other members who are technically still part of the team, but aren't going to be around for most of this adventure. Those are Sunspot, Roberto da Costa, and Warlock, who have been off running around with the Fallen Angels. Now, Karma also left the team toward the end of Chris Claremont's run. So that basically leaves Cannonball, Mirage, Wolfsbane, Magic, and Cypher, just five core members of the team as this arc opens up. And one fewer by the time it ends. So let's talk about New Mutants number 59 through 61, The Fall of the Mutants. All right, now we mentioned Birdbrain. They're calling him Birdbrain. Birdbrain is his official name. It's a plot point. I, it's such a bad name. I, that's, that's such a big part of why I have trouble taking this story seriously. Like, who names something Birdbrain? A bunch of teenagers, apparently. Well, they shouldn't. Anyway... He has been getting more and more and more panicked, and they've been trying to extrapolate more of his backstory from their very limited ability to communicate with him and finally determined that he comes from an island. He has cohorts there who are going to be tested in some terrible way because of the full moon, and he's trying to get back to save them. And the new mutants decide they're going to come with him to help. The last we see of them before this issue, they've just materialized in a cave on the island and found themselves surrounded by weird hybrid animal monsters. So that's where we pick up. Now, I want to talk about these animals because we're not going to go into them very much. They're called the Animates, which is a silly name, but that's okay. But I do want to talk about the fact that they're all sort of vaguely humanoid animals with impressive human haircuts. Yeah, yeah, that is. Do you think that was like a high priority on the animators list of hybrid characteristics? I think it might be, or it could be that the animators, uh, I mean, his profession is being a mad scientist that creates hideous human-animal hybrid monsters. But, you know, his passion has really always been hairdressing. Do you think maybe they're toupees, that they have little wigs? It could be, and they all like sort of trade them around, and they have big fights over who gets the good toupee, like who gets to wear the rock and longshot-style mullet, or the awesome, like, Elvis pompadour. I like this. I think we can state with reasonable confidence that this is probably what's actually going on. I mean, read between the lines, listeners. Like, it's, it's just right there. Clearly. So, let's talk about these toupee creatures and what's going on with them, because they're pretty freaked out. They are. They're surprised to see Bird Boy, although they seem pleased, but they're especially surprised to see humans there and to see that Bird Boy has brought humans there, they're actually pretty dismayed. They don't trust these humans at all. Right. They see humans as the oppressors. Humans are the wielders of whips. They're the killers. They are monsters 
you know, Birdbrain has gone for help and brought instead more agents of their inevitable destruction. And they don't trust the mutants until Wolfsbane changes form and they see that, you know, she's part animal and they're like, okay, well, I guess you guys are cool. We can start a trust you now. And so the Toupee monsters don't have much time to appreciate their newfound kinship with Rain Sinclair because a whistle blows and they all sort of get a dazed look on their eyes and wander off in a very Pavlovian kind of way. Right. They've been conditioned to respond to this. And what the new mutants learn from Bird Boy is that they've gone into something called the maze that they have to get through or they will be killed. At the end of the maze lies the animator, and if they survive, they will be somehow rewarded. None of them seem quite certain on how. And the new mutants decide that the thing to do is to dive into this death trap maze, because how on earth could that possibly be a bad idea? Well, and I think this really highlights an important element of this story, and really of new mutants in general, which is that these kids, I mean, they've been through some hard stuff. You know, Karma seemingly died at the end of one of their first adventures. They've lost some other friends as well. They've had to deal with the demon bear and that jerk empath. But in a way, these characters still kind of feel invincible. They've gotten through such horrible stuff that they feel like because of their mutant powers, because of the luck they've had so far, they're sort of charmed. They can get through anything. And the destruction that has happened around them has largely come to them. It's not been the result of them diving headfirst into situations. That's generally sort of worked out okay. Like, they've gotten in trouble, but... They've generally acquitted themselves reasonably well in the field, and they see no reason not to just, again, dive into the death traps. And I feel like this is an important story to tell within New Mutants. And honestly, it's one that I'm surprised Claremont didn't go into more himself. Mm. So New Mutants has always been about growing up. If there's a central theme of New Mutants, it is that. And I think a big part of growing up, and I think something that this story illustrates, is that becoming an adult, a lot of that is realizing that you're not indestructible, that mortality is a real thing, and sometimes things don't work out. It actually, the execution of it in this storyline kind of reminds me of the plot of The Dangerous Lives of Ultra Boys. Oh, I can definitely see that. Yeah. You know, I want to say, too, that we talk about death as a revolving door and not a big deal in comics, and we do see, you know, teams survive and go on largely. This arc really changes the New Mutants. It changes them as a team. It drastically, drastically changes Magneto. And we keep seeing its repercussions for a lot longer, I think, than is usual with stuff like this. Yeah, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. So in the meantime, the new mutants are, you know, being all happy-go-lucky, saying we have mutant powers, we're going to be just fine. Let's go into this maze and save Birdbrain's friends and everything will be great. And their optimism is, if not quashed, then rapidly at least compromised by the sound of screams and the realization a moment later that those screams came from a bunch of Birdbrain's friends getting crushed and impaled. And here, I think, is where Brett Blevins' art really does kind of shine. Because when you have an artist that does something this cartoony, having him then draw things that are grotesque and brutal, the juxtaposition makes it that much stronger. It makes it that much more disquieting. You know, I actually have trouble with the juxtaposition because it's not just that he's applying his style to more grotesque things, it's that he's drastically changing style. That's something you see when he draws the animator. Like, I love the way he draws the animator. Because it's incredibly, like, letter-perfect, old-school EC Bernie Wrightson. But it looks weird. It looks like a different artist coming in and drawing drop-in panels. I can kind of see that, I guess. For me, that personally works, but I could absolutely see how it would not for everyone. And so the New Mutants continue, realizing, oh, maybe we're in a little bit over our heads, until they are eventually greeted by three panels opening in a giant chamber at the end of a hallway, out of each of which comes a giant monster. Because apparently this is now Dungeons & Dragons. Well, uh, to be fair, the number of D&D references we make, it was really inevitable for something like this to happen. 
our D&D references in our podcast in 2015 have rippled back through the time stream and retroactively influenced Louis Simonson and Brett Blevins. Hey, you were talking about Cable two episodes ago. It totally fits. I don't know. I think it's more of an Apocalypse Summers Brother retcon. Oh, well, uh, regardless, it's absolutely what happened, and that's canon. So I'm so ashamed of us. They get in a fight with these monsters, and um, Ilyana's like, wait a minute, you know, maybe we should just teleport these creatures back to the mansion. Magneto will help us deal with them. I mean, he helped me with my demons. Maybe that would be a safer way of doing things. Correct. It would, in fact, be a safer way of doing things. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting in this arc to me is that the one of the new mutants who's consistently saying, no, guys, we should really go back to Magneto. We should really go get help. We are out of our depth, is magic. Yeah, she's normally the most anti-authority, rebellious member of the team. But, you know, I really buy it because one of the last things that happened with Ilyana of significance is what she just mentioned. The fact that Magneto came to Limbo with her and offered to protect her from demons. In fact, to kill Sim, the leader of those demons who opposed her. She really trusts him at this point. Yeah, she is someone, I I mean, like you said, she mistrusts authority, but by the same token, once her trust is earned and her loyalty, they are fairly unshakable, at Uh, least at this point. But the New Mutants are still feeling kind of invincible, and Doug Ramsey especially is saying, no, we can totally take them. Go crawling home for help? No way! We're here to stop the bad guys! And here they are! And man, not to spoiler the stuff we're going to talk about in just a couple minutes, but Doug, That we've been talking no. about since the start of this series. It's true. Doug Ramsey is going to die in this story. He is, and it's going to be really sad. It's going to be incredibly sad. It's not going to be as sad as what comes after it, though. Oh my mm-hmm. god. For me, like, this entire arc is a slow burn to New Mutants 64, which we're not actually going to get to this issue, but which is the saddest issue of any comic book ever. It may very well be. And so they fight these uh, D&D monsters, you know, the purple worm and the frost giant and the flump. The g- gelatinous cube is one of them, a gelatinous cube. We can say, sure. But I really I'm, want it to be because I feel like the animator making a gelatinous cube is somehow really fundamentally hilarious. As because long as... Well, because it's all about the animal hybrids and it's like, well, and also jello. As long as we can keep the flump, I'm happy, but the flump stays. Do they have impressive hair too? I can't uh, remember. They're sort of big jellyfish, so I don't know. But the new mutants are actually defeated. And they are captured by this dude we've been mentioning, the animator. Now, this is the first time the New Mutants have seen the animator. So let's talk a little bit about what they see. Oh, man. So the animator is basically a second-rate knockoff Dr. Moreau. So that's like Dr. Moreau, like M-O-R-E-O? That sounds like a second-rate knockoff breakfast cereal brand. Or porn star. Or porn star. Or both. There's no reason it can't be both. That's true. It's a versatile, versatile term. So the animator is basically your classic mad scientist on an island building human-animal hybrids. The fact that this is actually like a, a specific type at this point is kind of funny. They actually have a convention every year. They get together. They, you know, exchange tips. They, they hybrid one another. Oh, yeah, they totally do. That's Um, the highlight of the event. And he's wearing this fantastic outfit that appears to be a leopard skin, half of a skull, what looks like some kind of big cat skull, and a pair of neat little glasses because he comes from the Cameron Hodge School of Supervillainy and recognizes that the more outer the rest of your outfit is, the more unsettling your little round eyeglasses will be. And I really love the way Brett Blevins draws the animator because his exaggerated style makes this character look terrifying. He's very simian. He's sort of hunched over with very ape-like features. But again, he's not drawing in the same style that he's drawing the rest of the characters. Like, he's really doing rights in here. And he's doing rights in beautifully. I mean, his animator is terrifying and weird, and I love the way he looks. But it's a strange juxtaposition, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep saying that. I'm going to keep using that word. It kind of makes me wonder, too, because Blevins can obviously work in a pretty wide range, whether I would like his new mutants more if they'd been a little bit toned down or a little bit more in that direction. I think that's a totally valid question. 
Now, this is the first time the New Mutants have seen the animator, but the reader has actually seen a little bit of him already in some scenes that they were not involved in. So, yeah, animator, he runs this island, and the first time we see him, he's in his laboratory, which involves, as you might expect, a bunch of human-animal hybrids in various states of gestation and such. And he's sort of talking to himself as he looks at this giant whale, and I really enjoy the animator's dialogue because it's a good mix of extreme science and just him being clearly very emotionally involved in what he's doing. I mean, this is the mad scientist archetype, he really, really should be, but his dialogue here... Lot F. Phalanges nicely developed, but parietal bone. Far too prominent. Overdeveloped cerebrum. Brain. Too much brain. Occipital lobe. Look at it. A nightmare. Heads filled with dreams they'll have. A cursed batch. Much like the last. Too human by half. He's so fun. Like, he reminds me a little bit, I gotta say, of the murder grandpas. Okay, uh, not, I mean, the, the murder grandpas are not, don't, don't have that maniacal thing going. They're, they're fairly straightforward, but he strikes me as a guy with a very specific passion. He's a very specific drive who basically pulls disparate threads and has been desperately attempting to rationalize pursuit of this passion for a long time, you know, to whoever is writing his grants, to the institutions that he's been fired from, to using whatever language and whatever rationalizations he can to try to make it palatable or at least comprehensible and fundable to the people around him. Well, I I can just sort of imagine, you know, people are sort of criticizing him and they're breaking down his logic and eventually he's just like, oh, okay, fine, fine, I'll admit it. I just want to make awesome monsters on my own. Island. Is Look, that too all much to ask? I really ever wanted was a seven-foot-tall snake with arms. Okay, are you happy, Harvard? I just thought it would look really good in a tuxedo, and you can't put normal snakes in a tuxedo because they don't have arms, and don't you understand? This is science. Oh, it would look really good in a tuxedo. Like with a little lapel pin of some sort? Yeah, and it's got that long, that would be elegant. You know, if the animator ever goes up for trial, we can defend him on sartorial grounds. We really can't, though. Have you seen how he dresses? Uh, okay, we can defend him on uh, sartorial grounds in terms of what he brings into the world. You know, well, the, sh- and he the, won't, the shoemaker's he children go barefoot. And he won't give his elegant snake guy an outfit. Like, the fact that he won't give his creations clothes is a significant plot point in this. I mean, he, he applies house elf logic fairly heavily. How deep does this human-rabbit hybrid hole go? And he is working for someone, too. He's working for a character whom we as the readers, at least if we've been following X Factor, which we have, will recognize. And that is Cameron Hodge. This dude in a leopard skin is employed by the right. And you get the impression that he's keeping a lot from them. Like when the New Mutants come onto the island, he quickly calls up the right and says, hey, we're under attack. It's not safe. Don't come here. Because clearly he's got his own plans that he doesn't want them to see. Well, what's going to become increasingly obvious, what we're going to learn later is that he's been given a large amount of money to come up with a way to reverse mutation. And he's actually just been using those funds to make snakes with arms. You know. So he's got fairly good reason to not want a visit from the right. He has been massively misappropriating their already misgotten gains. And so the New Mutants are brought to him by these D&D monsters, by the Flumph, and he sort of confronts them. But specifically, he confronts Bird Boy because Bird Boy was an escapee from his island. Bird Boy was a creation of his. And has broken his rules. Ah, And what have you got to say for yourself, my bird boy? You of all of them, the zenith of my creations, you and your fancy clothes. Why, I suppose they've given you a name. At which point bird boy corrects him that no, no, his name is actually the uh, much improved bird brain. Silence! Who taught you to speak? Who gave you words? A name. A name indeed. You, an accident, a gene spliced, nothing. 
cut in half. Okay, I can kind of see where this guy would click with Cameron Hodge because they definitely have similar styles of supervillain rhetoric, at least to a point. Sewn together, dual natures eternally dueling. You dare to speak and speak a name. You have no name. To earn a name, you must know evil. To know evil is to become a man. The Bible, the Bible tells us so. <laughs> of serpents, evil serpents. He had a name, didn't he? And words he had. And apples, luscious apples. Perhaps you're hungry. Well, that took a sharp left. And, you know, what you said before about the animator kind of seeming like he's just justifying what he wants to do with whatever concepts he can. That's what this seems like, like pulling in the religious stuff pretty much out of nowhere. It's getting a little time cube at this point. Uh, it, it kind of is, yeah. But regardless, it's effective. I mean, between Blevins' Bernie Wrightson-style drawing of this dude and his sort of disjointed ranting while he's got the New Mutants completely helpless in his power, it's a scary thing. And I think that's something that works really well because Simonson's arc has felt kind of low stakes, kind of Saturday morning cartoon. And suddenly, it really doesn't. And the New Mutants realize at the same time that they are way out of their depth. Animator, at this point, decides he is going to kill Birdbrain, and he's going to kill all of the other animates from Birdbrain's lot, from Lot E, for daring to help the New Mutants. And the New Mutants never really thought about this. They never really thought that there might be actual consequences to their actions here. Yeah, uh, Mirage says, as they're all sort of bemoaning their fate, we acted like conceited snobs, like it was some sort of game, like tennis or something. Like, just because we had powers, we couldn't lose. Oh, New Mutants. Again, this is kind of growing up. It's harsh. It feels really crappy watching them get beaten down like this. But I think it's a necessary story step. On a lighter note, meanwhile in New York, Warlock is a rocket ship. Yes, he is. So Warlock and Sunspot are coming back from the Fallen Angels miniseries. They've done their time uh, in the Coconut Grove. Now, if you haven't been following, we covered this in a previous episode. We highly, highly recommend tracking it down. It's collected. It's absolutely delightful. It is the last time you will get to smile for a while. It kind of is, yeah. And they are trying to sneak back in because they don't want to wake up Magneto, figuring he will be cranky, as he tends to be. Well, and that he'll, he'll still be angry in the morning, but at least he'll be angry and reasonably well-rested, which is actually kind of good logic. But no, he bursts open the door, not knowing who the intruders are, and wraps them up in umbrellas, which is awesome. And Magneto is furious. And this is, again, man, I really disliked Magneto for the first few issues of Simonson's run. Like, he was bizarre, and he didn't read like the Magneto I knew. And you can watch her across the course of 59, 60, and especially 61 really getting the hang of his voice. She's not quite there yet, but she's getting closer. Of all the idiot stunts, do you have any conception of how worried we all were? You have much to answer for, youngsters. I demand an explanation. And I warn you, I'm torn between unmitigated joy at your return and the urge to strangle you both. That's basically the Magneto runs the Xavier Institute story in a nutshell right there. It really is. And so, as they head inside, Sunspot asks, hey, where are the New Mutants? And Magneto says, oh, they're right upstairs. Whoa, whoa, where are the New Mutants? They're gone. Whoops. And so, he heads off to the Hellfire Club to use their sort of monitoring equipment to find the New Mutants. What he doesn't think to do is look around his own house, because if he took 30 seconds to do that, he would recognize that his students had left the dining room table covered with maps to their current location. They have been planning this trip out to, you know, Bird Boy's Island to save his friends, and they have not cleaned up after themselves. So minutes after he's out of the door, Warlock and Bobby stumble across all of this. And again, instead of doing the sensible thing, calling the Hellfire Club and saying, look, as soon as Magneto gets there, tell him to call home, and then we can, you know, figure this out with our teacher. 
They're like, oh, screw it. We'll leave a note and just fly the hell off. It's that feeling of invincibility we keep coming back to. It's going off half-cocked because you're sure that everything is going to work out okay. And that's the downfall of everybody in this story. And, you know, it's what they've also just done perpetually and seen their classmates perpetually do. The New Mutants don't really see any significant point in, you know, going for help or calling in the big guns. They just dive in and assume that it'll work out for the best. And if not, someone will come in to bail them out. Yeah. Now, while Warlock and Sunspot are heading off to the island somewhere in the vicinity of Greenland, Magneto does indeed make it to the Hellfire Club, where he finds out what's been going on in the rest of the Fall of the Mutants stories. Well, most significantly in X-Factor, because X-Factor's Fall of the Mutants issues are going to wreck New York. Most of the tie-ins, most of the cross-title connections in this series come through X-Factor, although we see Uncanny come up a little bit later in here. But X-Factor is the one with the most directly rippling Marvel Universe repercussions, and it's the first one that Magneto hears about here. And so the Hellfire Club, who was involved in this battle, I mean, pretty much everyone in New York was, asks why he wasn't there. And this right here is significant. While it's not directly relevant to what's going on with Bird Boy and the New Mutants, it is very relevant to his future character arc. I'm your white bishop. I'd have come had I been called. But my heart would not have been in it. The major threat was to the humans, and I haven't yet become pro-human. And though I've recently come to believe that there are better ways to advance mutant kind than to tear apart human society, that conclusion is open to reevaluation. I kind of feel like hating humans is Magneto's security blanket that he just sort of tucks in around whenever he's feeling really, like, upset or scared. I think it kind of is, yeah. I mean, he felt much more in control of himself when he was a supervillain, when he was this anti-human mutant crusader. And now, all of that control is being pulled away from him. He can't keep his students safe. They keep disappearing. So, I kind of get it. And that brings us to New Mutants number 60. Now, like Uncanny X-Men 226, this is a double-size issue. It's sort of the center of their Fall of the Mutants arc. And it starts with the New Mutants imprisoned. Animator has got them in these glass tubes. He's beating Birdbrain. He's sliding further and further into madness, destroying more and more of his own creations as they're watching Helpless. And that's really disturbing. Like, there are these human-animal hybrid fetuses in these glass spheres, and they're just being broken just dozens at a time. Yeah, the animator's disregard for life in general is something that's driven home very, very, very hard in these scenes, and also just how far unhinged he's come, how far out of touch with reality is, and how far his obsession has taken him. The fact that Cameron Hodge seems sane and really reasonable compared to this guy is pretty telling, because Hodge is himself a very, 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 very hardline extremist. He is, and speaking of Cameron Hodge, at this point Cameron Hodge calls the animator to see what's going on, He noticed that the animator searched for specific mutants using the Wright's computer systems and figures this is probably relevant. Now, he, of course, has the X-Factor wards, the kids, captured himself at this point, or rather, they just escaped, so not anymore. So this is of special interest to him. I love watching Hodge and the animator talk because, again, we've seen Hodge mostly in X-Factor, where Hodge is the big villain. And just watching how exasperated he gets with the animator never stops being funny. So the animator we learn to is this dude who he plucked out of jail where he was being held. He'd gotten his research budget via medical testing, testing out medications, and he just stamped approved on everything and then used the resources and money to make weird human-animal hybrids because that is the animator's M.O. So Hodge was like, okay, great, we'll hire this dude. Because Hodge is this super by-the-book, point-by-point supervillain. He's like, what do we need? Okay, we've got to have a mad scientist, I guess. Let's find one. 
And he has no idea how to talk to the animator. It's great. He's completely baffled by this dude and his stupid hat. I like that he specifically calls him out on his hat. It's, I mean, this is his lead scientist who is running around in an animal skull. Like, it's a point worthy of concern. And Hodge is so far out of his depth here. Like, he's not a mad scientist. He's a mad bureaucrat. I mean, he is going to kill people and wreak havoc, but he's going to do it with careful spreadsheets. I love the idea of a mad bureaucrat. That's beautiful. It's so Cameron Hodge, though. Like, he is the supervillain who plans and plots and knows exactly how his supervillainous organization is going to interact with possible tax brackets. He's filled in all of the incorporation paperwork. Like, he dots the I's, he crosses the T's, and then he makes a suit of ridiculous fucking ruby quartz armor and goes and punches superheroes. He's got a genocide PowerPoint presentation. Oh, he probably does. And so, the animator tells Hodge to stay away, that he's working on it. Hodge, at this point, says to himself and to his cohorts, the smiley-faced armor guys, you know, I don't trust this guy. We just lost our own mutant kids. We can't afford to lose these. Let's go to the island. The animator figures this is probably what's going to happen, so he comes up with his new plan, which is to blow up the base, killing everyone inside except for him and the new mutants, who he will use as sort of genetic meat to build his new superhuman army. And he says that he's going to bring the animates with him, but Duck is able to convince them that that's probably not going to actually happen, and they probably shouldn't trust a man who runs around in a skull and a leopard print loin cloth yelling about god and doug is actually successful cypher using his linguistic abilities is able to convince the animates and they rebel and there's a big fight and the new mutants win they take out the animates who are loyal to the animator they take out the animator himself and everything is great And they stop the self-destruct sequence just in time doug is able to speak to the computer to communicate with it and to save the island and just as they're about to open the door out of this laboratory to get to freedom and a happy ending they're all guns down by Hodge's smiley face soldiers. I want to go back to Cameron Hodge for a second, because we know who Cameron Hodge is. Listeners know who Cameron Hodge is. Readers who'd been following X Factor know who Cameron Hodge is. And the New Mutants do not. And that, to me, makes him a much, much scarier villain to drop in. Right. He's like this ultimate evil authority figure, complete with his own, you know, authoritarian, robot-faced shock troops. I mean, everything that they're scared of, that they've been rebelling against— here it all is, right away. But at the same time, he's much less superficially supervillainous. He just seems like a guy. Like, Cameron Hodge has been successful largely because he's so easy to underestimate. So seeing him thrown up against a comparatively vulnerable group who've had no contact with him makes him a lot more frightening. If Absolutely. You, if you know who he is. Now, it turns out the New Mutants have just been shot with tranquilizer darts, which we've seen Hodge's forces use in X-Factor. But even so, just to see them taken out immediately, that's a big deal. Now, Birdbrain is able to rouse the other animates in a rebellion against the right. There's a giant fight, and everything looks like it's going to be okay. Sunspot and Warlock even swoop in almost in time to save the day. Except the animator is really kind of on nobody's side here. He's furious, his plans have been foiled, and he's got a gun. Which he points at Rain Sinclair intending to kill her just to accomplish something. And Doug Ramsey, who had been told specifically by Rain to stay in the back, to stay safe, sees it coming. He jumps and he pushes Rain out of the way and the fight goes on around him, which is actually, I think, one of the more effective bits is that no one else realizes what's happened. And even the reader doesn't for a moment. Rain, you know, turns to yell at him, Doug, get back, please. I can handle him alone. He's still armed and dangerous and you have no powers. I know you meant well, but what? Ever did you think you were doing? And she goes back into the fight as we, the reader, see Doug with this look of just disbelief on his face, 
fall panel by panel to the ground. And say, don't be mad, Rain. I'll, I'll never do it again. And guys, this shit is heartbreaking. This is a beautiful way for, I would say, not just comics, but media in general to show something like this. Because the most tragic part of Doug Ramsey's death, well, there are a few, but one of the most tragic parts of Doug Ramsey's death is that no one notices. No one sees what's happening. They are able to get away. Hodge decides to get the hell out of there. He strafes the island, takes off in a helicopter, which is subsequently taken out by a giant octopus animate in the ocean. We all know and understand at this point that being in an exploding vehicle doesn't mean that Cameron Hodge is dead, right? Like, we can take that as red. Oh, yeah. If Marvel, if the Marvel Universe has taught me one thing, it's that getting in any kind of a car crash or anything like that is completely painless. You'll be fine. Well, that no, it just inevitably means that your death has been faked in some way. And the new mutants are left on the island to celebrate their victory with the remaining animates, at which point they discover that they are, in fact, not all there to celebrate. Right. And I think it's Rain and Warlock's responses that hit me the hardest. Rain, looking around, says, Doug, Doug, where are you? It's safe to come out now. Come and congratulate him. Doug, Doug, stop it. Come on, get up, stop teasing us. You, you, are, you are teasing us, aren't you? Self, friend, dearest Doug, self has returned from sky. Villains are defeated. Why do you lie there? Can we not now experience joyous reunion? Oh, God, Warlock. Warlock just doesn't get it, and that's one of the hardest things for me. So Warlock doesn't really quite get death. That's going to become more obvious a few issues from now. Again, for me, like, this issue is kind of a sledgehammer to the chest, but it's also an appetizer for the overwhelming heartbreak that's going to come a little later. It's just, this is, God, this whole arc and just what it sets up is fucking devastating. And that leads us to number 61, which is kind of the denouement of this story. Opens up exactly where we left off on the animator's island as Ilyana takes the surviving smiley-faced soldiers and begins feeding them to Limbo. And she is, at this point, unambiguously murdering them. I mean, we've seen her drop people into Limbo and head off before, but here she's explicitly throwing them to her demons and telling the demons to shred them. Yeah, I mean, she even specifically gives the first one to Sim, the leader of the demons who's been rebelling against her, as a snack. Which is wild, and which also is a pretty good demonstration of how angry she is and how far she is slipping at this point into the dark child persona we talked months ago i think about doug ramsey as kind of the conscience of the new mutants and the question of what happens to them and what they turn into with that conscience excised is going to play out vividly on a number of fronts but nowhere nowhere more intensely than with magic i completely agree and Once she's sort of done with that, once the animator has been fed to demons, once the surviving right soldiers have been fed to demons, the new mutants take their leave of the animator's island. Bird Boy stays there. He's going to lead the remaining animates. He thanks them for the offer to come with them, but that's where he's going to stay. He shows up again briefly, incidentally, in Nova in the mid-90s to teach a character named Condor, who is one of the bird people who wanted to become a crime lord. Like, that's all I know about him. I don't know who the bird people are. I just know that Condor is one of them, but he teaches him some skills and uses some of the animator's machines to help repower him after he's been de-evolved. In one of the Shadow Hearts games, the mob was led by a fluffy cat. It joined your party. Good, good. See, I always go to, I, I think, is it Black Condor, who's the DC character who was raised by Condors and then sent off to become a senator? Yeah, you know, they wanted some representation. God, I love that. I, I just, I love that as a backstory. I know there's more to it, but when you pair it down to the essentials, you know, raised by Condors, became a senator. <laughs> That's the title of his, his biography. 
Uh, I want that to be the title of my biography. So the New Mutants leave the island with uh, Doug's body in tow and head back to New York, back to the Xavier Mansion. And back to Magneto. Magneto's not home yet, though. Magneto is still at the Hellfire Club. And here again, you know, we talked about Simonson getting a grasp of these characters. And 61 for me is where it decisively and definitively becomes her book, where she is the writer on New Mutants and where her run takes its place as among the strongest bits. This issue is so good. Part of what's good about it is that it highlights one of my favorite things about this team, which is their friendships and interpersonal dynamics. There are no generic friendships among the New Mutants. There are ones that, you know, people keep going back to. There's Danny and Sam, there's Doug and Warlock, but you can mix and match them in any way and have a whole new set of really distinct and really genuine dynamics. And Simonson keys in on that so beautifully here. What it actually reminds me of is the uh, movie of Stephen King's Stand By Me, where there are these four kids who are going off to find a dead body in the woods. And over the course of the first part of the movie, they each pair off in different pairs with one another. And so you get to see how each group of two interacts. And those are all different and well-realized interactions. It's kind of like that. Well, yeah, and seeing them each respond to this cataclysmic event that has very, very specific and very personal meaning for each of them. But yeah, we've got the combinations of characters here are so interesting. We've got Magic and Warlock. Warlock doesn't understand. Magic is explaining why she wants Magneto to come back so much. Limbo's like a black hole that tugs at me, but Magneto helps me there. With him standing guard, I can relax a little and try pretend to be a normal kid. I like that she's paired with Warlock here because Warlock is likewise kind of something else in person form. I mean, he is very much a person, but he is not reacting to this the way the rest of the New Mutants are. He's not mourning because he doesn't really understand what's happened and he's not going to for a while. And Wolfsbane and Cannonball are hanging out together. Wolfsbane, of course, feels like this is all her fault. Doug was good and kind. He was my friend. He died saving me, and I didn't even notice. And Sam tries to comfort her. Oh, stop it, Sam. I'm so wicked. I don't deserve to have people love me or be kind to me. I'm the one who should have died. And this dialogue, like, it's not as flowery, it's not as poetic as Chris Claremont's is, but it feels real. It feels believable. You can just see the raw emotion within it. And you see Sam really stepping back into the role that he'd sort of fallen out of when the New Mutants started, you know, being written younger of kind of the team Big Brothers, of the one who is there and just, you know, kind of looks after and catches the rest, which is what Rain really needs more than anything at this point. He actually officially adopts her as his little sister at this point, and it's so, so charming. It works. They've got the same hair. (laughs) They kind of do. It's very spiky and poofy. Yeah. And then finally... There's Sunspot and Mirage, and this is my favorite part. This is my favorite pair of characters, because these are the two who are traditionally sort of the most brash and headstrong of the team. They're the ones who run into situations who would always rather punch than apologize. Bobby says, It's my fault Doug's dead. I ran away, took Warlock with me. Doug and Locke were always a team. If Locke had stayed here, if they'd stayed a team, he would have protected Doug, and Doug would still be alive. Magneto doesn't like me, and Xavier thought I'd turn to evil, and my father thinks I'm a wimp, but I am truly a- What? A monster? Well, listen, jerk, I knew we were grounded. I knew why, but I agreed to follow Birdbrain and his people anyway. I could have stopped them. I'm supposedly the co-boss of this team. I could have insisted we wake Magneto up before we left, but I knew they'd go anyway and think I was a wimp and I wanted to stay boss. I was so alone before I came here. My mirage power made me an outcast till Xavier taught me I could use it. 
control it for good or ill, so I kept my mouth shut and went along with them. And Doug paid for it. Look, Danny, everybody wants to be accepted, loved, whatever. I thought I wasn't. That's why I ran away. So we're both monsters sometimes. Big deal. We'll share the honor. And they ultimately decide they're going to call Magneto together. And yeah, I, I agree. That is my favorite exchange in this whole book. And that exchange is actually what got me to realize this is a legitimately great issue. As many complaints as we've had with Simonson's run so far, this is where it completely turns around. And I mean, I found myself more emotionally affected by this single issue than I had been by any of the X books in quite a while. It is. One of the things that I really like about the podcast, about doing the podcast and reading for the podcast, is that it breaks up series in ways that neither of us had really encountered or gone through before. That, for example, we had to break the Bird Boy saga into two arcs. And coming into this, this second half of it a little bit fresher, coming into it without the previous three issues as immediately in my mind, I think I gave it much more of a chance than I did the first time I read through and really picked up on a lot of the stuff that Simonson was doing that I'd kind of missed just in the mess of how frustrating I found the early Bird Boy. I, I completely agree, yeah. And so Magneto gets home just as the New Mutants are watching television footage of what's going on in Dallas, of the apparent deaths of the X-Men. Including the older brother of one of them. And he asks what happened. He asks if they're okay. And they tell him. They tell him about Doug. And Magneto snaps. We've seen Magneto getting more and more fed up with New Mutants, with the fact that they keep running off with his own relative impotence when it comes to protecting these kids from a big and overwhelmingly hostile world and from their own worst impulses. And he just, he loses it here. He grabs them and basically imprisons them in metal and is yelling, you know, is this the only way I can actually keep you safe? Is this the only way I can actually keep you here? The new mutants, meanwhile, are freaking out. Ilyana desperately wants to go to Dallas and help the X-Men. She's trying and she can't get there. She's trying to get their attention saying, yes, stop it, all of you. Doug is dead, but the X-Men, my brother, may still be alive. We have to help them. The X-Men are adults choosing to endanger themselves protecting humans. They can take care of themselves. You mean you aren't going to do anything? I am indeed. I am going to do the most difficult thing I have ever done. I will call Doug's parents and try to find some way to tell them I allowed their son to die. So I'd read this once. I remembered nothing else from, you know, I remembered panels. I remembered moments. I remembered two lines of dialogue from this arc verbatim. One was Doug's last words. And the other was that line of Magneto's. Like that was the one that stuck with me more than anything else. It's kind of devastating. And they continue fighting back against him. Magic especially is furious. And I can understand that, you know, her brother may be dead. She wants to go save him and Magneto won't hear any of it. He actually turns on them, imprisoning them again. You will do nothing. Humans kill Doug. Protecting humans has destroyed the X-Men. Are you not aware that the humans are forcing known mutants to register? Have you no concept of what that may mean? You are not the X-Men. You are children. You may be all that I have left. Wow. That really is telling. Because when it comes down to it, if there's something at the core of Magneto's heart, it's that he cares about mutants. He wants to protect them. And time and again, he has been unable to do so. And this is the worst it's ever been. And he knows it. And this is more than anything, the start of Magneto's slide into his next chapter as a supervillain. So let's talk for a minute about Magneto, because we've talked a lot about 
what makes for a credible heel turn for Magneto. What a believable linchpin is for him to slide back into supervillainy. And for me, the stuff that comes out of this arc of New Mutants is among the better because he is at such a horrible intersection of things. You know, he's got the kids he couldn't keep safe, and we know that's a huge issue for him. Mutant registration, which, you know, given Magneto's history, I feel like if there's anything that entirely justifiably turns him against the government again, it's going to be that. I completely agree, yeah. And that's a plot thread that I think both Claremont and Simonson had really looked at, the idea that Magneto has just been completely unable to do what Xavier asked him to do, completely unable to be this more heroic version of a person who accomplishes the same goals of protecting mutant kind. It's been building and building and building. It's not a cheat when he finally does go back to the dark side. Now, Magneto may be ready to give up at this point, but his students are not. In fact, They decide that with the X-Men gone, it's really up to them to be the superheroes. And so they do what any reasonable kids would do under this circumstance and go up to the attic to make new costumes because they decide they can't use their graduation costumes because those are from Magneto. They have to forge ahead. They have to start on their own. And they come up with the graduation costumes round two, which are dubiously better than the first set. I think Mirage's is maybe arguably worse. I really like Magic's new costume, but then again, I kind of liked her old graduation costume too. I like the red. I I never really saw her as as a wearing white type. But regardless, this is the look the new mutants are going to have basically right up until Cable starts militarizing them a little bit down the road. And everything is replaced with pouches. Yes, it is. A pouch full of pouches. And so that kind of sets up the next era of new mutants. Doug is dead. They're still in mourning. Magneto is pretty much, you know, the evil authority figure at this point in their eyes, and they've decided that what they need to do is be a team of superheroes to replace the X-Men to protect the world. Which they are entirely unqualified to do. Nonetheless. So I want to talk a little bit about the death of Doug Ramsey, because this is really the second major X-Death we've seen, not counting the whole Phoenix continuity nonsense, after Thunderbird. Yeah, and this is a bigger one, because Thunderbird had been around for, what, two issues when he died? Something like, yeah, and Cypher has been around for years at this point. Yeah, this is a good 60 issues into the series, and I have such mixed feelings about this, because it's such a good story. And it's a really good death as comics deaths go. It has a huge amount of impact for decades to come. He stayed dead, you know, way longer than you'd expect, especially because Simonson worked in a fairly obvious way to bring him back. On one hand, he's my favorite new mutant and they killed him and I'm mad. But on the other hand, if you're going to kill a character, this is kind of the way to do it, to give it actual lasting repercussions and a huge amount of impact. And again, it's the source of what I think may be the single, or at least one of the very, very best New Mutants issues, which is number 64. So I'll go directly to a quote from Louise Simonson about why she killed Doug. As for killing poor Cypher, I did that for several reasons. There was a rumor at the time that he was killed because the artist hated drawing him, another that I hated him because I had to keep twisting stories to find some instance where there was language that had to be translated. The real reason was, I know you'll find this hard to believe, there was a write-in campaign from lots of readers who hated him and thought he was boring and wanted us to get rid of him. Preferably, they wanted him dead. We got lots and lots of these letters. More teenage superheroes die that way. Yeah, Jason Todd, right? Yeah. Oh, that was a call-in campaign, technically. Still, either way. Yeah. Uh, Anyway. So I decided to call these readers bluffs, do exactly what they were asking for. On the other hand, I never kill a character without knowing exactly how I'm going to bring them back, if I so choose. It is comic books, after all. With Doug Cipher, the way was obvious. So, I decided to have him die a noble death of loving sacrifice, saving his dear friend Rain. And, surprise, surprise, we started getting lots of letters asking, how could you? Doug was my favorite character. So, there you have it. And you know, she mentioned that there was an obvious way to bring him back. That was originally supposed to be the transmode virus. 
Yeah, he was infected with warlock sort of techno-organic stuff. What Simonson figured was that if they brought him back that way, he would be a more visually interesting character at that point because of the transmode infection, and he'd also be a more physically oriented one. What's really interesting to me about this is that when he did finally come back decades and decades and decades later under a different writer, the transmode virus was a critical part of that, but none of the rippling effects that she had hoped for had happened. He still has the same basic power set. He still looks the same. His powers have been amped up in ways that make him more effective physically, but not more visually interesting at all, including, you know, he's, when he's a physical fighter, like he's just a very efficient martial artist now. So meanwhile, the death of Doug Ramsey aside, you've got questions. Okay, so Battle Beast asks on Tumblr, if you could have any iteration of an X character from Battle World replace the usual 616 version, what would you choose? So as much as I love the original, I would probably say the version of Jubilee from the Secret Wars Runaway series. She's uh, still a vampire, but in this she sort of is this rebellious character that runs a girl gang at a prep school. But she's still fundamentally herself, and I find it an immensely entertaining version of that character. Alternately, if I can have a, a second choice, I would say possibly Baroness Rachel Gray from the Secret Wars Extinction Agenda series. We didn't get to see much of her, but I really loved sort of her conflicting compassion and pragmatism. I think that's something that worked very well for Rachel Gray. I'd love to see it explored more in that sort of leadership context. I don't know about replacement, but I would really like to see a world where there are like five Abigail brands running around. Abigail's brand. Oh man, that would be the most terrifying team ever. They would be stone cold. Or they would just get in endless arguments. But yeah, no, I, I want all the Abigail's brand. All of them. Excellent. All right, so Jason asks from our Patreon page, So I was reading the Mutant Massacre and some of the X-Factor stuff that followed, the Archangel arc. I noticed that they were using Thought Bubbles as a storytelling device quite often. As someone who didn't get into comics until the mid-2000s, I've only ever really seen this used in older comics I've sought out. I was wondering if you knew when this device started to get phased out in favor of either narration captions by a single character or no inner monologue at all, which seems more common now. I actually quite like how it's used in X-Factor, as it allows me as a reader to see how all the characters are being emotionally affected by all the terrible things they encounter. So, this is largely a matter of style. You see, you know, styles and trends in comics storytelling the same way that you do in, for example, you know, poster design or camera angles in TV or like that era when everything had to have bullet time. Like that happens in comics, too. And that's what happened here. You see it starting really in the late 80s, around 1986, when you've got books like The Dark Knight Returns that are more heavily influenced by TV and by movies, and so tend to go to a more voiceover style of framing than thought balloons, be more reliant on dialogue for exposition, and to go to captions over interior thoughts and stick with single character points of view. You still see thought balloons in comics now and again, but they almost feel campy when they come up now, like a nod back more to the style than to the idea of expressing, again, characters' interiority. We are a totally listener-supported podcast, and one of the rewards that people who support us at a certain level can receive is thanks on the air in a variety of voices from fictional characters and or forces. I'm going to turn it over to the angry Claremontian narrator. With the hubris of youth... You thought you were indestructible, Peter Sanzone. You disobeyed your elders, and you ran into conflict without a thought for your own survival, or that of your teammates. I hope you enjoy explaining this to Andrew Samuel Marvin's next of kin, Peter. Or did you not think of that? Did you assume the universe would once again clean up after your mistakes? Joke's on you, pal. I'm nothing but a collection of passive-aggressive captions. I can't even dial a phone. And with that, 
Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes of our show come out on Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, and at rachelandmiles.com. You can also check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, episode companion posts, essays, fan art, X-Men evolution recaps, and much, much more. Our show is indeed listener-supported entirely and is ad-free. That's made possible by our generous Patreon subscribers. If you'd like to become an awesome subscriber, please check out the link at the top of rachelandmiles.com. Next week, the original five X-Men are reunited once again. As Caliban falls, Archangel rises, and X-Factor saves New York. And we wrap up our coverage of The Fall of the Mutants. (laughs) 